Twelve years ago, Daniel Kahneman published his blockbuster bestseller, Thinking Fast and Slow. Every CX professional I know has a copy, and every CX professional I know claims to have read their copy. And I feel comfortable referencing the pecan rule without explaining what it is. But if his insights are that widespread, why do so many companies still end their experiences with poorly formatted, overly long customer feedback surveys? This is the CX Patterns Podcast with Sam Stern, and today's episode is the first of a two-part conversation with Kelly Price, my talented former LinkedIn and Forrester colleague. Today, I'll share with you an extended conversation we had about what it looks like when companies do design experiences conscious of the importance of peak moments and experience ends. This is one of the conversations I've been looking forward to with the launch of this podcast, and Kelly is the person I wanted to have it with. Okay, let's get to the conversation. And listeners, if you aren't familiar with the peak end rule or some of Daniel Kahneman's research contrasting the experiencing self and the remembering self, not to worry. Kelly starts us off with a very clear explanation. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the CX Patterns Podcast with Sam Stern from LinkedIn. And excited to be talking today with my twice former colleague, Kelly Price. We worked together at LinkedIn. We worked together at Forrester Research. And Kelly, it's great to see you. Great to talk to you again. How are you? I'm great, Sam. Thanks so much for having me. So I am excited to talk to Kelly listeners today about journey mapping research, about peaks and ends of experiences. And when you want to talk about those topics, you want to talk to Kelly. So that's why she is on the CX Patterns podcast. Kelly, first, you and I have talked about this before. Some of our listeners might be well aware of this. It's a concept that comes from thinking fast and slow and Daniel Kahneman. But the difference between the experiencing self and the remembering self. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and what that means to you and, and how that applies to customer experience? Big question to start us off here. Sure. Let's start with simple definition, maybe for anyone who is not familiar. So we have our experiencing self, which to go back to the title that you just mentioned, I think of that as the fast part. That's what we're experiencing moment to moment. And then we have our remembering self, which is more of our slow part. It's what our mind tells us about the experience, sort of the narrative or the story that we take away, how we think about that. And both of these types of selves matter within customer experience because there's the moment to moment of the experience that we have. And then there's obviously the memory that we, we take away that is going to inform our perceptions of the experience as well as our future behavior. That's great. So I think it's important, though, maybe to go one level deeper on the yep. remembering self. What is it about the experience that creates the memories that the remembering self holds on to? So what's shaping memory is, like I said, there's the experiencing self or that moment to moment that I think the research says exists sort of in three second increments, more or less. And most of those just fall away. And what we're looking for, what our brain is looking for as we're progressing are those moments of intensity where the story of those moments to moments change. And those moments of intensity can be really positive or they can be really negative. And it's those intense moments that get encoded into our memory that then shape 
the experience that we take away. The other thing that shapes the experience that we take away is kind of the proximity at the end, right? It's what happens at the end of the experience that then moves forward into the memory that we have, hence what is called the peak end rule. So there's moments to moments as we're moving through the experience that change in intensity that pop out from what's already happening and then what's happening at the end. So what that tells us from a customer experience perspective, right, is that we have these precise points within a journey that a customer has that really has that really matter in terms of the memory that they take away that's going to inform pretty much whatever they're going to decide to do next. Yeah, that that's great. That's very clear. And I think important points there. And I'm I'm feeling like as you were describing that, I'm thinking, God, it's the peak end rule, but it's also the the change, the moment to moment change that is the third factor in this. But the idea that most of what happened to the experiencing self is forgotten in the memory. And it's forgotten because we only have so much brain capacity. We have to push away some of the things that are just normal routine aspects of life. It's why you can be driving to work on your normal route and have the a jolt of a moment that you forgot you were even driving because it's so routine that you can do it without thinking about it. And it, so it is those changes. And then, as you said, the end matters too because of the proximity to in your mind, the close of that interaction, that experience. So thank you for sort of walking through that in detail. So the next question I would ask is, if you were thinking as a customer experience team about designing an experience to be experienced versus designing an experience to be remembered, what would you prioritize in those two different scenarios? What would you be focusing on if it was an experiencing self experience versus if it's one that you really want it to be remembered and obviously remembered well, how do those experience design elements start to look different in those two scenarios? I think the first question to ask is what is the type of, not to overuse the word experience, the type of experience that we're talking about? Some experiences you do not want to be memorable. So I'll ask you a question, Sam. What's the last thing you can remember that you bought online from any vendor? Mm, I do remember because I do not buy much stuff online. I bought pasta. Okay. And what do you remember about the checkout experience of that? Well, I did it on my phone and I had to go through the checkout a couple of times because it kept I kept getting an error in the cart. Okay. So probably not a great memory. Sounds maybe frustrating. So in situations like that, what I would say is that that's an example of an experience you probably don't want to remember. And really, the only opportunity to remember it is going to be negative because that is essentially a commoditized experience that exists across you know, thousands, millions of organizations that we're going through all of the time. So when we're designing an experience like that, we're trying to make it as unmemorable as possible. I think about the core elements of a customer experience, right, of being easy, effective, and evoking some type of appropriate and positive emotion. And these types of experiences, we want it to be easy. We're optimizing for ease and casting it aside so that we can remember the parts of the experience that are more uh, important, like receiving your pasta, let's say. Right. So I think that's a I think that's a really good point because why am I ordering pasta online? That seems weird, right? It it's special shapes from this one company that I really like. And so getting it is a little bit tricky. And so ordering it from them directly is the easiest, most you know, 
it's the easiest way to ensure I will get these weird special pasta shapes. And to your point, the memorable part is when I get to make a pasta dish with these unusual pasta shapes, not ordering the pasta shapes from the company. Yes, exactly. So you're looking at a part of the customer experience that I would say, again, you could say commoditized is something that is really ubiquitous. You're trying to optimize for making it unmemorable. There are other experiences, though, where we either want to make it memorable or we want to explicitly shape the memory in a way that is more positive. So in those situations, when we're looking at the end-to-end experience, we want to understand what is that peak that exists today from the customer perspective? And when does this experience end, which is not always totally clear, and making sure we're being explicit about that. And then once you have a sense of what it is that you want the memory for the customer to take away that is contextually appropriate, you can get into understanding different levers, let's say, that you can use to quote unquote reshape the peaks, be intentional what you're doing with the peaks within the experience to help drive that outcome, that memory in a way that will produce a long-term positive customer perception. Is there an example, you probably knew I was going to ask you this, is there an example that stands out to you of a company that's done a really good job of accentuating the peaks or of really nailing the end of an experience? So maybe we can start with thinking about some of the different levers that you can pull with peaks because I think context is incredibly important in thinking about the different ways to move here. So sometimes with a peak, where an intense moment is maybe negative or anxiety producing, what you're really trying to do is neutralize that peak as much as possible. So I think about examples there from the healthcare space, where a lot of times you're you're dealing with things that are inherently anxiety producing because they're questions about health or the health of a loved one. So if you think about the last time you went to the doctor, maybe took one of your daughters, Sam, to the doctor, there's all these different factors that are coming in and that you can start to notice that are about trying to neutralize that anxiety and making that peak less pronounced. Anything from the design of the space, the colors they're using, how they create space to be kind of close with the folks that you're there. Um, also about removing other barriers that could or factors that might augment the anxiety beyond just the fact that you're dealing with something with your health. So things like not knowing where you're going, not knowing where what you're supposed to be doing, kind of front loading the experience and setting effective expectations about this is what you need to bring. This is what you need to go like removing all of those other factors. And then there's things as simple as like not simple, but as precise, let's say probably is a better word. Of that different MRI producers create for like this point in time moment that's specifically anxiety producing to again try to neutralize that. So Philips, I know, for example, has these machines that you can customize the experience that you of what you're seeing within the MRI based on personal preferences and what's calming to you. Or GE created a MRI machine specifically for children that's designed to look like pirate ships so that it becomes more fun. So so there's all of these things, these different points of moments and anxiety within a healthcare type experience where there are really great examples of trying to neutralize that, that the memory becomes less or potentially even switches to something that is more positive. That's the first example. And I would say there's several other things that you could think about doing with these peaks, again, based on context. So 
Again, there's neutralizing peaks that maybe are more negative. There's amplifying peaks that are already really positive, turning them more into those moments of celebration so that what is good becomes even better and even more memorable. And then there's situations where, you know, you're trying to remove a part of an experience that is a peak that maybe is not that positively memory producing, let's say, altogether. So anything, if you can think about any experience, I think TurboTax is an example of this where you're not having to enter a bunch of information that you had to previously or any situ- experience where you can you know, try before you buy, which is more of a reordering of the experience to re-augment it. So it's kind of this sense of, I think, number one, considering is the peak positive or negative? Is, there the, is that inherent to the experience or more inherent to the person coming into the experience? Like it's about the experience itself. And then based on that, what are the different levers that we have to pull to make this as positive as it possibly can be in a way that's contextually relevant? Yeah, that's great. And I think the, the healthcare examples with the MRI machines, you're going to come in for an appointment. So it could be about changing the experience for that human, as you said, right? We're going to give you all this information up front, try to re- lessen the anxiety of, well, I don't know where to go, or I don't know what I need to bring, or I don't know when I need to arrive. We're going to iron all that out with very clear, specific communication. But then we can also change the context of the experience itself, which is, you know, personalizing the interior of the MRI machine for for an adult, creating a fun, interactive, whimsical experience like a pirate ship or a spaceship if it's a child with the MRI machine. So I think that those are great examples of how to approach this. And I think your point is very well taken that a lot of peaks in experiences are peaks that are negative. Yes. And so taking down those negative peaks first is important work. And is work that gets to the emotions of the experience, even though they're negative emotions. You are taking negative emotions out of an experience, which then creates room and opportunity for putting more positive emotions into an experience. So that makes a lot of sense. Let's carry this through to the end of the experience. (laughs) Any good examples that stand out to you about how companies have, and it could be, again, taking a negative emotion out of the end of an experience, but How have companies tackled this that you've seen? Any examples that stand out to you about making the ends of experiences memorable in a positive way or less memorable in a negative way? Yeah, I think that's a great point there. So if I think about the different, again, there's different levers of how you use the end based on what's already happened. So is it an amplification of something that's good, helping you remember it even more? Is it a neutralizer, again, of something that maybe was not good, but there's only so much control that you have over it? Or so things like service recovery if something bad happened, can we use that to try to boost things back up? And and then, of course, using it as maybe if it's a pretty neutral experience where we want it to be more memorable, using the end as a lever to pull there. So um, one example that I have talked about in past was from Disney, of course, always thinking about these kinds of things. And at the end of being in a park, they, instead of hunting for your car, you know, in the parking lot, they allow tram drivers to identify a customer's car location based on the recorded park arrival time. So basically when you're leaving the park after this fun day with your kids and your family or whomever, instead of then having that end of the experience be something that is inherently stressful, you're tired, you can't find your car, 
they make it as easy as possible so that it doesn't overshadow whatever the peak was before. So to me, that's a great example of trying to use the end as a neutralizing kind of factor at the end to make sure that all of the great peaks and memories that you've made throughout the day become really the highlight of what you're taking away. Another thing that we have not talked about, I think, so much yet is that not all experiences have super clear ends to them, particularly things that we're doing in a repetitive fashion. So part of doing this effectively is considering the different ends that exist within a continuous experience and helping your customers or your users sort of understand what that endpoint is. So a way to help your customers kind of continuously build positive memories and therefore trust in the experience would be not to ignore that the end zone exists, but to concentrate on where these likely exit points are from the experience and finding ways to make those really seamless. Again, going back to what we had discussed, of particularly for these experiences that are really repetitive that we don't necessarily want to be memorable, the end is always this point. If we don't end it well, it has the potential to create a negative memory, right? So for example, this is something super simple that we probably don't think about, but imagine how annoying it would be if it didn't exist. Saving automatic drafts and confirming deletions when you're closing a window for writing your emails. Like that is an end of an experience where you're exiting out of something and could easily make mistakes. But it's showing you you're you're finishing this experience and are we finishing it in a way that is aligned with what your goals were? So I it, love that example so much because, and sorry to speak over you, but you, no. you were saying aligned with the user's goals and contradicting the user's actions to align yes. with their goals is such an important and powerful uh, part of that, which is they're closing this window. Don't they just want to close the windows? Like, well, no, they don't because they're not saving their draft here. And we need to check with them because they probably want to save their draft of this email. They probably don't want to lose the unsaved changes. I, I think that's such a profound point to this too, is that you are sometimes having to contradict the user's actions, you know, their, their revealed preference to get back to their underlying stated preference, which would be to not delete their draft. Yes, 100%. Well said. And I think, I think that's a great example. It's such a small one. But to your point, it gets into the continuity of the relationship can have all of these mini journeys. Each time you use your email client, you know, Gmail or Outlook or whatever it is, you are having another interaction with that company, with that software. And there's an end in that experience. And if those mini journey ends don't go well, the whole experience, the whole relationship will end at some point. So you want to make sure you get those right because those are memorable moments, even though they exist in this much smaller, more discrete context than a, a bigger end-to-end journey might. Yeah, 100%. It's, I think that thinking about the context of like a, the overarching goal that someone has, and then there are all these sort of sub-goals that people have within an, an overall experience that can be a good mechanism as you're thinking about translating this into practice of, well, where do I even begin to think about where where the ends are within my experience? What are the set of tasks and goals that customers have that then you can start to get explicit about defining those endpoints and making sure that they are effectively delivering on whatever the expectation is or making the experience good. I'm going to share one other example of, of re-engineering an end to an experience because this is my favorite mm-hmm. example of all time. So 
Unreasonable Hospitality is the book. And it's a story about how 11 Madison Park, which rose to become the greatest restaurant in the world, it's in New York City, in large part based on great guest service, one of the things that they knew they had to do was re-engineer the end of the meal because they found, and this is what I loved about this example, is they found that for some guests, they were bringing the check much too quickly and those guests felt rushed. For other guests, it was the opposite. They felt like the check was never coming. They were getting frustrated. They were full and just wanted to get out and walk off that huge meal they'd just eaten. And it was this really tricky problem where they were balancing between for some people, we'd be rushing them if we bring it sooner. For others, we're not bringing it soon enough. And so what they did is they bring the check with a full bottle of liquor and glasses for each member of the table. And they say, no rush. Here's your check. You pay whatever you want. The bottle is yours to keep. So you could take it home with you. But you are welcome to sit here and continue to enjoy it. And I just love how that re-engineered that end of the experience. It is now back in the guest's control to stay as long as they like, which means also they could leave immediately. They could pay that bill right there and go. And I just thought that was such a creative and intelligent way to think about the end of the experience when you have that, that dichotomy that sometimes for some guests it's too fast, for others it's too slow, how to thread that needle between those two competing segments of your, of your customer, customer base. Yeah, I love that. And takes the pressure, I guess, so, so to speak, like off of the server, right? Like you can imagine a scenario of trying to design yeah. three different types of experiences and looking for all these signals and not knowing if it's right. So the simplicity of that makes it. That's right. Really. Yeah. Impactful. And no, it's a great point because that is the way they did it is something they can execute. It's not something that requires this, you know, superhuman empathy on the part of all their servers and, and, and a lot of attention that probably takes them away from doing other tasks. What I love about what Kelly emphasized in the conversation is that peaks and ends can be memorable because they're negative, not just because they're positive. I know that I personally have a tendency to default to thinking about positive peak end moments and how those form memories that drive loyalty. After all, we're trying to design better experiences. So focusing on designing great peak moments and end moments is something that I sort of uh, default to thinking about. But negative moments are memorable too. And of course, they drive disloyalty. Kelly reinforced the importance of addressing negative peaks and ends, especially important for experiences that shouldn't really be memorable at all. Kelly used my example of buying pasta online and the hiccups that happened at checkout to emphasize that point. Ideally, that experience is easy, and I get on to the more important journey I have with that company, using their pasta to make dinner for my family. But some journeys will be memorable no matter what. And so that's when negative peaks ideally can be flipped to positive peaks, like with the GE MRI machine example, a famous one in the experience design world. It took a terrifying experience for children, and I'm sure for their families, and turned it into an adventure, decorating the MRI machine and its room to look like a pirate ship or a spaceship or another exotic and fun adventure space. A child getting an MRI is almost certain to be memorable for the child and for their family, whether it's good or bad. The machine, the room design, the training of the staff went a long way toward ensuring the memory would be positive. And finally, the example from 11 Madison Park, where the reimagined 
end of the meal experience where they bring the check, that kind of experience with double jeopardy on both sides is not just limited to restaurants. Off the top of my head, think of a retail setting where some customers want help and are annoyed if store employees don't come over soon enough and offer it. And other customers are hoping to not have to talk to any employees while they're in the store, maybe other than a checkout. Or think about a hotel where some guests would like their room cleaned every day, whereas others don't want housekeeping to come into their room at all. These are two-sided problems where if you shade to one direction, offering help all shoppers in a retail store, cleaning all rooms every day at a hotel, you leave a lot of customers less satisfied with that experience. For these types of experiences, the approach from 11 Madison Park is the right starting point for imagining how to re-engineer the experience. Give the control back to the customer. With housekeeping, let them decide if they want their room cleaned and when. Personally speaking, I would love to schedule housekeeping for when I know I won't be in the room. Remember, give the control back to the customer whenever you can. Thanks for listening to the CX Patterns Podcast. If you follow me on LinkedIn, you'll see the newsletter that accompanies each podcast episode and contains all of the details and links that support the information shared during this episode. The newsletter is also a great way to share this episode with someone else, and I would appreciate it if you did. If you have any feedback, you know I want to hear from you. This is a podcast about customer experience. So please connect with me on LinkedIn and share your questions, comments, and thoughts. Thanks to my colleague, Emily Tolmer, for creating the logo, and to my friends, Moon Island, for the music. That's all for now. I'll be back next week with a Loose Threads, Missing Threads mini episode, and in two weeks with part two of my conversation with Kelly Price, where we get into how to conduct customer research that will enable you to create better peaks and ends of experiences. Talk to you soon.